Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, the Other People Podcast is a listener-supported program. All episodes of this show are free, the app is free, everything's free. And so I count on the support of listeners to throw a couple of bucks in the hat to help me continue to do this work, interview authors, and share a new episode with you every week. If you listen, if you like the show, and you would like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. couple of bucks in the hat. If, if enough of you do it, it makes a huge difference. You can also support the show via PayPal if you would prefer to do it that way. There's a link in the sidebar at the Other People website, otherppl.com. Okay, thank you. Let's begin. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? What a struggle. It's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. So, hey, everybody. How's it going? Uh, I'm Brad Listy. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm here in Los Angeles, California. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for listening. My guest today is C.L. Jew. She has a new book out. It is a novel in stories called Cake Time. It is available from Red Hen Press. I'm going to be, uh, you're going to hear that conversation in just a second. Before I get there, I thought I would tell you a little bit about my week. I went to the ESPY Awards this past Wednesday. I go to the show uh, every year. I've been for like a decade because my wife works on the show, and uh, I get to go. You, you know, you see all these great athletes. I'm a sports fan, so it's it's kind of uh, entertaining. It's a fun night every summer. And uh, I got to see Michelle Obama this year, which was a thrill. Got to see, uh, I got to meet Bill Murray briefly, which was fun. Uh, Bill Murray was my first celebrity hero. I think it was like Bill Murray and then Han Solo. Maybe those were the two that I recall most distinctly as a kid gravitating towards. But I specifically remember being deeply moved and influenced by Bill Murray's performance in Stripes. And then Meatballs, which I remember I watched like 11 times in one day as a kid. I just watched it on a VHS tape. I would get to the end, I would rewind to the beginning, I would start over again, just watching meatballs over and over again. <laughs> but uh, I, I think there is something that is uh, common about that experience. There's something in Murray 
that is communicated in his performances, communicated in his presence and his screen presence that really resonates with a lot of people. Maybe young men of a certain persuasion. I don't know. But Bill Murray really got to me as a kid. And I remember watching Stripes. I remember asking my mom for an army hat like the one he wore. I wanted the hat for some reason. I wanted to dress like him. And I, I sort of understood intuitively his subversion of authority in that movie and the way he sort of stood for or symbolized fun. Same thing in, in uh, Meatballs. I think that's kind of part of the, at least in the earlier films, the Bill Murray uh, comic persona. Kind of a prankster-ish uh, subversion of authority and uh, a kind of performance art. that works against the more rigid aspects of our existence can feel liberating and inspiring. So I don't know. I just, I've always had a, a very, very soft spot for him. And, uh, I took my daughter to the show this year and we get out of the Uber. We're downtown and we were walking across the street to, uh, the Ritz Carlton hotel downtown to say hello to my wife who was working on the show She's wrangling celebrities and doing all this stuff. And uh, she had to actually meet Bill Murray and get him over to the theater to get him ready because he was presenting or accept he was accepting an award for the Cubs who could not be there because it's the middle of the baseball season. So the timing of it just happened to work out. I get out of the Uber, walk across the street. I see my wife. I say hello. She's like, oh, Bill just got here. And then next thing you know, we're all walking to the theater together. And my wife's like, oh, Bill, this is my husband, Brad. And he turns and we had a handshake. I did not chat him up. I, I cannot do that. I, I'm, I'm fundamentally incapable of chatting up celebrities and telling them, oh, you know, I'm a big fan. I can't do that. Oh, I loved you in Stripes. <laughs> I watched Meatballs 11 times in a row when I was a kid. I'm not going to do that to the guy. You know how many times he's heard that? And see, this is, this is the banality of celebrity. And I feel bad for people because I see it every summer. You know, you see it on this, you go walk the red carpet on the way into the show, all of these athletes, and you have kids coming up to them asking for autographs, kids who idolize these guys and they know it. I mean, most of them are, you know, they get it they were kids too. And they they almost always sign. They almost always are, you know, good to these kids. But that's got to get old. I sympathize constantly. Like, hey, can I get a picture? Hey, can I get a picture? Hey, will you sign my jersey? Hey, I would not handle that well. I loved you in Meatballs. I'm a huge fan. Hey, can I get a picture? Fuck that. Don't do that to people. And then people who ask for autographs. I mean, if you're a kid, fine. I don't mind kids asking for autographs, but... Any adult who's out asking for autographs needs to have their head checked. The fuck is wrong with you? Get an autograph. <laughs> there was a funny thing I remember reading about Steve Martin, where he would carry uh, what were essentially business cards in his wallet that he had uh, printed up. You know, he'd had somebody print up that said, essentially, this card proves that I have met and interacted with Steve Martin in person. You know, or something to that effect. And when people would come up to him in the streets in like New York City or wherever it was 
and ask him for his autograph, he would just give him one of those and be like, here you go. <laughs> and there's like another anecdote that I recall with respect to fame where, uh, I want to say it was Steve Martin again, where he was talking about the experience of being famous. And he was describing a time that he was walking through the lobby of the Beverly Hills hotel, the big pink hotel that I think is in uh, true romance. Remember that it's an iconic hotel in Los Angeles. And he's walking through the lobby and there is a, like, you know, older Midwestern couple, like a woman and, a, and her husband in their sixties. And you can just tell they're from out of town. And he's walking through the lobby and he can feel the eyeballs on him. And this is a part of celebrity that, uh, I really empathize with that experience. This is, this is how you live your life. Every time you go out in public, just eyeballs on you. Everyone, you walk into a restaurant, everyone's clocking you. You can feel it. That's got to suck. So Steve Martin is walking through the lobby of the Beverly Hills hotel and he can feel this woman and her husband like, you know, clocking him, watching him. They recognize him. They know it's him. Are they going to talk to me? Are they going to say something? I loved you in the jerk. You were great in planes, trains, and automobiles. <laughs> Can I get a picture? You know, all that kind of stuff. But uh, what, a what actually happened is even funnier. They're walking past each other, and the woman kind of leans in his direction, and she says to him, in a whisper, enjoy your anonymity. I always thought that was a funny story. So uh, I saw John Stewart. I locked eyes with John Stewart. And I think of John Stewart. Well, let me tell you about my interaction with John Stewart. So I had just taken my daughter to the bathroom. It was a commercial break. And then I'm walking back to our seats and you have to kind of walk past the front row. So you walk past the front row. It's all the celebrities are sitting there. So it's Kevin Durant. It's like every athlete, Steph Curry, Aaron Rodgers, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, then John Stewart who presented an award, uh, you know, the Pat Tillman, uh, award to, uh, some military veteran who had sustained horrific injuries uh, in combat or whatever. Um, I'm walking back to my seat and there's John Stewart sitting there. He's not talking to anybody. He didn't look very happy. And I made eye contact with him. And the strong signal that he sent out was don't fucking talk to me. <laughs> uh, maybe I'm projecting. Maybe I misread the guy. But I feel like he was sort of in a fishbowl. He was sort of out of his element. I mean, he's a sports fan. And Jon Stewart can obviously talk to anybody. But I just feel like, you know, he was there to present to his friend and you know he was happy to be there to present to this guy who he greatly admires but i don't think he loved kind of sitting there being on display at commercial break feeling all those eyeballs on him but i made eye contact with him and i wasn't like i wasn't looking to make eye contact with him it was like one of those things where i was walking and then i looked up and there's john stewart like eight feet from me we made eye contact and i think i sort of like there's a little bit of a stagger to my step like my knees went weak a little bit like oh there he is like but it, it wasn't like a smile, even though I had my like seven-year-old daughter with me. He didn't even give her a smile. And what it made me think of, because I just read uh, not too long ago, The Oral History of The Daily Show. I love books like that. There's a, there's a good oral history of Saturday Night Live. 
There's an oral history of ESPN that I read. I love books like that about like media entities or whatever, where all the different players spill the beans. And one of the things that you get from it is that, uh, I think that one of the things that I got from it is that the day-to-day function of the show where you're drudging through the news and, uh, you know, what did he call it? He called it like a shit sandwich. You got to eat a shit sandwich every day, watching all this news coverage, all this Fox news crap, sifting through it, watching people lie, watching politicians behave terribly. It started to eat at him. I think it actually was a real burden. And yeah, you know, it's not uh bale and hay or coal mining, but it's a, you know, there's a grind to it. And I think it wore him out emotionally and spiritually a little bit. So I felt for him on that level. The other thing is that, you know, comedians, uh, you know, despite how funny they are when they're on camera or they're on the stage, a lot of times they're not the happiest people, IRL. And I feel like Stuart is probably, you know, more well-adjusted than most. But I just, I just sensed a great melancholy in him, just in that flash. Maybe I was misreading it. Bill Murray, too. You know, I feel like, uh, you know, obviously there's a, there's a lot of melancholy in there too. And I think maybe the reason that uh, I had that feeling with Jon Stewart or the reason that it's on my mind, uh, now is that I just also, uh, I just finished reading, uh, as well, a uh, biography of David Letterman by Jason, uh, Zinneman, who's the comedy beat writer for the New York times. And, uh. Letterman was, I mean, just not a happy camper. So funny, so smart. But uh, sort of miserable. And very, very, uh, very, has a very difficult time being social. And then I say all that, and I think about last year at the SB seeing Charles Barkley, the uh, basketball player and now basketball announcer, who in all of my years living in Los Angeles, all of the exposure that I've had, it's not extensive, but I, you know, when you live here, you, you see some famous people of everyone I've ever seen who is famous. He's the one who wore it most lightly. Like Charles Barkley was just having a great time. He'll talk to anybody. It's not a burden for him. It doesn't wear him out. At least not on the night that I saw him. Maybe he was drunk. I don't know. just makes me think of like the difference between how things look and how they actually are. You never know what's really going on inside of somebody. You never really know how a person's feeling based on limited, limited interaction or some sort of social performance. People are complicated. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. 
He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is C.L. Jew. Her novel and stories, Cake Time, is available now from Red Hen Press. Had a great time talking with her, and I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Here she is. This is C.L. Jew. I was born in Korea. Uh, You know, I'm not actually sure. I think Incheon, uh, which is a city there. Okay. And then my parents... Thank you for clarifying, by the way. (laughs) As opposed to... She recognized the look of stupor on my face. (laughs) Um, and then my parents are, or were missionaries. So we lived in Kenya for a long time and converting people. Well, they were not me. Not sure. Okay. (laughs) You're like, I had nothing to do with it. (laughs) And then we would come to LA or the LA area on furlough, which is like missionaries take a break, like every four years or so. Come to Hollywood and. Yeah, well, Pasadena. Pasadena, okay. Yeah, because I think there's like a seminary there. Pasadena's really nice. It is really nice. It was different then, though. I mean, it's nicer now. What's the the, Huntington Gardens? I have not been there in years. one of my favorite places in Los Angeles. When's the last time you've been there? A couple months ago with my daughter. Oh, wow. For the really? first time. Like, and I've been here for 20, I'm like, I'm that, I'm that guy who lives yeah. in a city for 20 years and finally gets to like the best place in the city. But, uh, <laughs> did I you was, get the annual membership? No, oh, okay. I'm not that committed. All right. Like give me time to <laughs> ease into it before I commit to the annual, but it's just a beautiful place. And then I was just noticing there's a lot of beautiful old homes in Pasadena. I don't get out there very often. Yeah. This but, is a cute area too, though. Yeah, it's great. Next to Larchmont. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, so you come to Pasadena on furlough mm-hmm. after being in Kenya. How old are you? I think the first time I was like 10 or 11. Okay. So you're conscious. Oh, like when I went to Kenya, I was younger than that. But Do you remember it? Yeah, yeah I remember it. What was it like? I mean, you living, like, where were you living in Kenya? Oh, um... We were living in a place called Eldoret for a while, but I was mostly an American boarding school. Okay. So that was in Kijabi. All right. Like, what is yeah. that? I have no context. Like, what is American boarding school in Kenya like? Uh, it's like boarding school. <laughs> it's, a, <laughs> it's just normal boarding no, school? No, I mean, I, I don't know. I think maybe because of like Sound of Music or whatever. Boarding school kind of has like this negative connotation. Like I, I always think of like horrible... the Northeast. I think of like New England and yeah, like... I think of that a little bit too. And but what... you know, it's kind of like college, except you're younger. You know, you just you live in the dorms. Uh, you have a cafeteria. Um, Do you get a good education? Yeah, I mean, I would say it's definitely better than what I would have gotten probably if I went through LAUSD all the way through. (laughs) Doesn't take much. (laughs) You know, I mean, I guess it depends what you compare it to. Yeah. Um, But But all that, all that travel too, like I feel like uh, itinerant childhoods, Mm -hmm. especially those that involve international travel, 
um, I think that childhoods that unfold in the context of a big city, like, I think there's an, I guess you're, there's an inherent education no matter where you're from, but there's something to that. Like, don't you feel like you benefited in some ways from moving around like that and experiencing different cultures and having exposure? Rather yeah, than... I'm sure. I mean, there are pluses and minuses. So yeah. I think like growing up with a bunch of different languages was kind of cool. I mean, I didn't like retain any of them. Oh, I was going to say, <laughs> you speak five languages? <laughs> no, I really only speak English, unfortunately. I mean, I can like recognize words and in Korean, I probably have like a, I can communicate, like you never lose the grammar, which is kind of cool, I think, but my vocabulary is like, you know, a first grader's. Right. Or probably worse at this point. That's no fun when you're the first grader in a conversation. <laughs> yeah. I can order food though. <laughs> That's yeah. Um, you know, which is, it's useful in LA. And so when did you get here? You came here on furlough and then when did you get here? Like in like stay more here? permanently, I was like 15, 16. All right. Yeah. And your parents, what, what religion were you, uh, were your Christianity. parents? Christianity. Just like broadly Christianity? I think yeah, I, they had a denomination, but it's like a Korean one. Okay. Um, but it was, you know, sort of run on the mill, run of the mill, uh, nondescript Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> I love that I guess that sort kind. of evangelical. And it's okay. So, and they're out there. Are they, are they priests or they're just missionaries? They're lay people who are out preaching. They are. So he was a pastor okay. and a missionary. Okay. Yeah. You know, but for the most part, they taught. So they uh, were at a, they were basically at a college where they trained Kenyans to be missionaries or pastors in their communities. Gotcha. Yeah. I was just going to say, uh, as I speak with you, that I've had on this program, not a ton, but like a good handful of writers who come from, uh, you know, religious upbringings where their parents were either pastors, preachers, missionaries. Mm -hmm. Like I've, I've had this conversation before. It's interesting that like that combination sometimes yields literary people. Yeah. I've, I've noticed that too. And I wonder if that's true or if they're just a lot of us just in the general population, I think like more than we would think. Maybe. I mean, America's very religious. There's a lot of, there's a lot of evangelicals <laughs> yeah. and people out there, but as a percentage, I think there's, there's gotta be something to it. Like, did you feel, I mean, you said that you yourself were not involved in missionary work mm -hmm. and you sort of laughed. Does that mean that you found yourself, uh, you know, in adolescence or later in life pushing back against it or feeling a resistance to, uh, your religious upbringing? Yeah. I mean, you see a lot of like the hypocrisy of organized religion and then, um, but it wasn't anything like violent. It was more like when I went to college and didn't have to go to church or do any of the religious stuff anymore. It just kind of faded away. Where'd you, know? you go to school? Uh, for college? Yeah. I went to a tiny college in Indiana called DePaul University. I'm from Indiana. Oh, is yeah, it, I knew that. Is it that. Greenfield? Yes. Is it Green? Greencastle. 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 I spent yeah. a week in there. That's a tiny... Really? Why? A, was, I was in high school. I think it was like my parents wanted me to look at it to see oh. if it was of interest, but it was just like a bunch of fraternities around a big yes. square. Yes. That's a very that's a very conservative school, right? 
in a lot of ways. Was it fun? But no, it was terrible. <laughs> Why <laughs> did you in go Indiana. there? I don't know. Well, they did give me a full ride. Oh. So that did um, influence things. But, I mean, there are other places I could have gone. I think at that time, I had no idea how much a place could affect you, which is kind of weird considering how much I'd moved around before then. Yeah. But, you know, I hadn't been in a place where it was like I was one of like five Asian people and uh, I don't know. The weather was really terrible. <laughs> there, were so, there was nothing to do. There was so much I didn't like about it. Well, okay. I'm, I'm interested to hear you say this because... Uh, I've been out in California and in Colorado for all of my adult life. So mm -hmm. I've been away from that sure. for longer than I was in it by a good measure. But, you know, that was where I spent a good portion of my childhood. And I remember those winters. And I remember when spring would finally come, like the, the incredible relief and like mm -hmm. how good sunshine felt. <laughs> but then it lasts like two weeks. Yeah. And then it's gone. But now that I've been in California, you sort of take for granted how nice it is and how much natural beauty there is and how accessible it is year round and all this stuff. There's yeah. part of me that thinks like, it's so cheap to live there. Like, <laughs> just go back, get a McMansion and just settle down, you know, like, but would it drive me crazy is the question. And I, I don't know, I guess, uh, the point that you make about how a place affects you and how the culture, not just the weather, but the culture makes you feel mm -hmm. and how important environment is like, it really does make a difference, um, to the quality of your life. I guess I'm saying something totally obvious, but <laughs> no, it's true though. I mean, it's nice to like walk outside and, you know, be have inspired. the day be beautiful and like improve your mood every day. Yeah. Well, but it's also, I guess like when I'm, uh, playing point counterpoint with myself, there's a part of me that's like, it shouldn't matter. Like if you're good on the inside, then your external environment is, is not going to be a huge issue. And if you're not good on the inside, then you could be standing in the middle of paradise and it would be problematic. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? <laughs> that's true to some extent. I mean, I remember reading, uh, about how like people who are depressed generally live in smaller places, but they're not sure whether, like what comes first, like whether because they live in this little tiny hole of a place, they're depressed or if because they're depressed, they don't think they deserve better than a tiny, you know, cramped spot. You mean you like a, I mean? they live in small physical like uh, abodes or they live in small towns or both? The former. So like a tiny apartment. Oh, okay. That's uncomfortably tiny or whatever. So there's, you know how there's this tiny movement where like everyone's downsizing and simplifying their lives. Yes. And living in like 300 square foot houses. Yeah. That's probably different though. Oh, it is. Well, I, I was going to say, if you see one <laughs> of those, if you see one of those, you know that whoever is inside is in the fetal position. <laughs> Miserable. <laughs> those sound different though. I mean, those are like, aren't those made with like all these contraptions to make the place seem bigger than it is and it, multifunctional? And uh, there's a lot of me like the, the idea of simplicity and the idea of not needing much and the mm -hmm. idea of, um, carving away the extraneous so that you can have a higher quality of life. You know what I'm saying? Paying, not paying for shit that you don't need. All of that can be very attractive and can make a lot of sense. But then 
I got to believe in the day to day, if you're living, especially if you're living with other people, mm -hmm. you're crammed into some tiny little house. It's got to drive you crazy. Yeah. Right. You need a yeah, little I space. Think so. I mean, th didn't they say something like you need, you do get happier until you're like making 70,000 or whatever. And then after that, it's not, but 70,000, isn't that like higher than the average well, yeah, American but, income. Yeah, it's all relative, though, to where you live. Because oh, right. I think $70,000 in Greencastle, Indiana, you're doing pretty well. Right. $70,000 <laughs> in Los Angeles, it's tough. Sure. You know? If you have uh, people depending on you, especially. Right, exactly. So uh, I want to get back to religion for a moment because I was thinking about this this morning. I had a feeling you were going to say that. What? <laughs> that I was thinking about religion? No, you wanted to get back to religion. Well, it's a, it's a point of fascination for me. I'm, I'm interested in how people make sense of the world uh, cosmically, mm -hmm. like for lack of a better word. And that there's always this envy that I have of people who are able to find in religion like real comfort at, at the level of magical thinking. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was listening to, cause I, I, for as much resistance as I have in me toward it, like I always read about it and listen to podcasts about it. Like it's something that's of, of deep interest to me. And I was listening to this podcast this morning and the person was talking about, um, how if you, um, throw a rock into a river, the rock just sinks down to the bottom of the river. Mm -hmm. And if you have a boat you can carry hundreds of pounds of rocks. And so you need a boat is basically the metaphor. The boat is the religion. The boat is like mindfulness practice. That's the podcast that I was listening to. Cause <laughs> okay. that's my, that's my jam sure. is, is like that sure. kind of stuff, like meditation, like trying to, um, cause that, that to me is very logical. Mm -hmm. It doesn't require magical thinking. Cause I have so much resistance to magical thinking. So I started thinking about the different boats in the world. Like people have different boats. That's how they deal with their suffering. There are people who believe the most incredible, fantastical things with such conviction, but based on very little observable evidence. Sure. How, how the hell do they do that? Like, how, how can you trick yourself? Cause I feel like, wow, that would be so nice to believe these fantastical stories. Like I feel like the world would seem more magical that way or something. Like there was a little bit of me that I felt like a pang of envy. <laughs> If crazy? only I believed in virgin birth, <laughs> my life would be, <laughs> I could figure out life and know how to live. I'm just, I'm, I'm really fascinated by people who can go there because mm -hmm. it's, it's too, it's too easy to simply say, well, they're all idiots. There sure. are a lot of, there are a lot of very super intelligent, smarter than I, more educated than I, people who do go there. Like what's up with that? And then there are people who are not but who go there as well. And like, you know, they're, they're all, there are varying levels of sophistication, but I just, I don't know. I find myself, um, sort of staggered by that. Like, do you, do you ever struggle with it or think about it that way? Yeah. Well, I feel like just having a natural tendency towards skepticism sometimes skews my life experience in a negative way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you're always looking for. <laughs> That's what this whole podcast is about. <laughs> if you're always looking for how, you know, an idea is wrong or could be better versus just accepting it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know that I have anything intelligent to say beyond 
you know, I just don't, I can't force myself to believe. Me neither. You know, me neither. I guess I'm just, I look around, you know, trying to make sense of like the full scope of it. And, uh, from everything from like the people, uh, what's it called? The Hajj? Was that the big march, the big, um, in Islam, the big march to Mecca or whatever that to like people who go to the Vatican to people who, you know, all of it, Mm -hmm. like all those different levels and kinds of belief to Scientology, like all of it just, uh, I'm interested in how people make sense of the world. Yeah. I mean, I guess I feel like, you know, maybe I haven't thought about it as much as you have, but I do kind of feel like a lot of the people who have those beliefs haven't questioned them or yeah. thought that. I mean, there's definitely a subsection of people who believe those things who have, who've done like a ton of like soul searching. But I feel like the majority, they found something that helped them it's to some degree. You know, it gave them friends. It gave them a framework to explain past pain or you know something and that was enough ameliorate like feel fear of death you know like sure a need, a need to know with some like you know sense of concreteness what happens after after uh, we die right i think that's a lot of it too yeah why do you think about death a lot sure <laughs> don't you death not really i fear more like car accidents or like, you know, getting disabled Being or maimed. pain, yeah. that kind of thing. Sure. Well, you know, I don't sit around obsessing, <laughs> but I do like the idea of like, there's a, a thing in uh, Buddhism where you sort of like uh, acknowledge the fact that you're going to grow old and die every day as like a practice. Hmm. I think there's something, you know, within reason, there's something healthy about that because it makes you live with more immediacy and purpose. You know what I'm saying? Like this sure. is, it's a reminder that this is temporary. Um, I also don't want to get to the end of my life and like freak the fuck out because I never really thought about it. You know, uh-huh. I, I want to be prepared, but okay. I don't, but I don't want to overdo it. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have any siblings? I have one sister. Okay. She's in St. Louis actually. So oh. when you were talking about a gigantic mansion in the middle of nowhere, I did think of her. I mean, not that St. Louis is in the middle of nowhere, but it's, it's small. Yeah, I mean, like St. Louis, Indianapolis, Cincinnati. Um, there are other there are other cities in the Midwest. But there's a lot of commonality. I mean, they all have their own identity. I don't mean I don't mean to say they're the same, but there's a lot of there's a common thread that runs through them, and they're they're all about the same size. And uh, it's a good place to be raised. Like I, I'm not disappointed that I grew up there. The people are very very nice, but uh, I do remember really wanting to leave. And like yeah. being very excited to be gone. Sure. And you know. Did like your friends, are your friends still there or was there like a diaspora? It's a diaspora, but it, there are a few that, that are there. More than a few. But all of my close friends, like literally all of them left. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So we're talking, you know, the close circle of 10 or 15 friends that I spent the most time with growing up, all gone and, and did not return. Sure. So, um, you go to, you go to DePaul Mm -hmm. all four years. I left after three. You did. I just finished early. You're like, get me the fuck out of here. (laughs) I'll take double course loads. Um, and then what'd you do? I was in New York for like six months doing an extended internship. Those are like my last credits I needed. Okay. 
to graduate. Then I came back to LA. What did you study at DePaul? English writing. Oh, you did. Very predictable. Okay. Yeah. And then what did you do in New York? What was this internship? Uh, I was at a PR company and just did grunt work, basically. Writing press releases. That sort of thing. That yeah. sort of thing. Call, calling, you know, journalists. This was like, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't really my thing, but it was fun to be in New York at that time. I was going to say, after being in Greencastle for three years, suddenly yeah. you're in Manhattan. What was the, that juxtaposition like? I loved it. I wish I had more money then. <laughs> this is what I always say. Been... <laughs> money is wasted on old people. Right. They can't get around. They, they're, they're like f folding inward on themselves. They don't want to travel. They're tired of new experiences. Like they need to flip it. You, you need sure. less money when you're old. Give it all to young people. Let them go travel. Yeah. I mean, it forces you to be creative, but I liked it a lot. There are a lot of free things in the city too. And for a long time, whenever... Like I was stuck in traffic in LA or something. I'd be like, I'm moving back to New York. I've had it. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice with public transportation. I wish we had better. That's one thing about LA that I wish we had uh, a better system of, you know, like really could get around, but it's a huge landmass. It's not right. like Manhattan. Manhattan's small. By yeah. Comparison. It's much more doable though. Their subway systems like totally falling apart right now. Yeah. I mean, you know, don't even get me started on infrastructure. <laughs> That's my other obsession, along with religion. It's religion and infrastructure. Really? No. Um, so then it was back out to LA? Yes. And when you when you got out, like when did you say to yourself, I'm going to write books? Was it in college or was it after? Probably after. I was super aimless like for a really long time. Even in grad school, I was very... Which was where? USC. Oh, okay. So I stayed here. But, um, you know, I had like no plan I just sort of floated around. I went to grad school just because it seemed like the next thing to do and working kind of sucked. Yeah. It's like, I don't know what the fuck to do. I'm going to just go hang out here. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the um, graduate program? It's a PhD in literature and creative writing. Oh, okay. Yeah. So are you a doctor? I am technically a doctor. I am yeah. talking to a doctor <laughs> of literature. You must get a lot of those in here. Not yeah. as many as you would think. Yeah. No. I mean, it's expensive to go through that much schooling and then, um, well, it was a fully funded program. Oh, it, it was in the humanities. So they Good. have to, you know, I mean, what are you going to do when you come out and you're a poet? Well, I went to graduate school with a lot of poets who were, went like 60 K into debt for a no master's way. degree. Yeah. I was in the MPW at, at USC, the now defunct MPW. Oh, right. So, yeah. How do you feel about that? Um, I mean, it was fine for me. Like I have, I have fond memories of it cause I made good friends. I, mm -hmm. you know, I was able to, you know, figure out how to get an agent and stuff like that. You know, like I, it, it worked for me and it was just a, a place to hide out and write my novel. Sure. That was but, all I wanted was the time. And then it gave me a little bit of a community, but the, the program itself and the education that I got, mm -hmm. um, the guy who was running it, you know, pretty much let anybody in, which mm -hmm. I didn't know at the time, Sure. you know, and they had a great faculty. There were some really accomplished faculty. So there were positives, but I don't know. It was kind of a shady deal. And I think if you actually peeled back all the layers of the onion and knew the truth, mm -hmm. you would be like, wow, this is uh, a lot of grifting happening. <laughs> but it sounds like you were focused and kind of extremely. Knew you were, yeah. yeah. I, I really just needed a place to hide and write. And that's what it was for me. Like yeah. I, I came in the door, 
um, with a book in the works and a regular writing practice. I didn't come in the door thinking like, this is going to make me into a writer. Mm-hmm. And I think if you cut, if you try, if you go to graduate school for writing, hoping that that's going to happen, sure, it can be a, a lot to ask. Yeah. I don't think I even had like specific hopes. Like that's how sort of aimless I was. That's awesome though. <laughs> it worked out fine, but, <laughs> but in retrospect, you know, I mean, cause I mean the MPW program, what was that? Two years, three years? Two. Okay. Yeah. I was in my program for seven years. Wow. So it's kind of a lot of time to fritter away. You know what I mean? Sure. But it's also nice to like, extend that academic experience. It is nice. And I feel like I have never readjusted to like real life where, <laughs> where it's not normal for people to, I don't know, read half the day, write a little bit, waste more time. Right. Lay you out, know in, the, what lay I out mean? in the quad or whatever. <laughs> right. <laughs> I feel like I still, yeah. I mean, I guess I'm lucky because like there are aspects of that in my life now, but it's like, I can't, I have trouble disciplining myself. Yeah. Well, I mean, so let's talk about that. You, um, have published a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, did it take you a, a super long time since you have a, a, you know, trouble, professed trouble disciplining yourself? <laughs> Was this something well, that I can, <laughs> I can discipline myself for like short spurts sort of, and I don't know. I mean, I think I'm undisciplined, but then I see other people and I'm like, maybe I am. Spend a day with me. Okay. (laughs) Spend a, spend a day in my life. You'll feel a lot better about yourself. Well, your life has like a lot more going on. My life. I feel like, I I feel like, let me ask you if you ever feel like this. Do, Do you have, do you ever have moments or periods of time where there's nothing weighing on you? There's no obligations. There's no sense of people needing you. And like having to be somewhere like that internal feeling of being rushed. Like briefly, like when I meditate or something. Yeah. Even when I meditate, I'm feeling like I'm being sort of a dick taking time for me. Should be downstairs feeding the kids breakfast. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I never feel, I guess that's a function of parenthood, but it's also just a function of a busy life. My wife and I both working and I got this Mm -hmm. day job and I got kids and I got this and I got, you know what I'm saying? I just like, sure. I long for, uh, just nothing. Maybe I need to go to Greenfield, Indiana. Just sit down <laughs> at <Castle>. green castle. <laughs> Play golf. <laughs> um, I, you know, I wonder how much of that is like, I mean, I'm sure your actual busy life affects it, but it does like, I mean, isn't your state of mind just a lot of it? Cause I feel like I have a lot of those sort of panicked, super anxious, I'm so behind yeah. uh, feelings all the time. And I have to like constantly remind myself like everything's okay. Nothing, nothing. There's no emergency happening right now. Right. You know? Right. And like, you know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. It's not the end of the world. You take 15 minutes for yourself. Sure. Right? Is that all you take for yourself? That's, <laughs> that's all I have. <laughs> Uh, but no, I mean, I'm talking about meditation, but like, do you meditate for super long or are you? No, I do 15 minutes in the morning and then 10 minutes like later in the day. Yeah, that's good. The the one later in the day is the one that I have trouble with. Yeah, that's the hard one. Cause yeah, I get home and I've got, there's just too much going on and then I'm hungry and I find that like, I can't meditate, uh, when I'm drunk. So after I've, you know, had dinner and drank or I'm joking, but, uh, (laughs) 
I find that it's hard after a meal. Like if uh-huh. I have dinner and like a glass of wine, it's like I, it's hard to sit down. You have to do it like on an empty stomach. Do you? I find. Can you like have a smoothie? And <laughs> well, that maybe so. Is there a smoothie option? I, I think so. I, you know, and that's the thing too. I don't want to put too many like, uh, what's the word? Uh, I don't want to build too many rules around it. You know, where circumstances have to be perfect. But yeah. the one in the morning is good. At night or in the evening, it would be nice to be able to do it before dinner. But the logistics just aren't working for me right now. Sure. So well, one thing that helped when I was teaching was I would keep energy bars in the trunk. Because what would happen when I was driving from work to home, it would just be a terrible time because my blood sugar is crashing, I'm exhausted. You've you you got everything. like a case of these things in the trunk of your car? Yeah, just buy like those, you know, 12 pack boxes. So then what I would then do is once I got to the car, I would get an energy bar and eat it on the way home. Huh. And then I would feel okay. What kind of home. energy bar? What's your, what's your favorite? Um, well, I'm trying to go easy on the energy bars now, but back then, um, I don't know anything with peanut butter. Okay. Yeah. Cause like, like it's Lara a, bars. Lara bars are good because yeah. they have in, like normal ingredients. Right. I get they a have little, like two ingredients. Right. They're and I'm, I, I get, I get worried about like when it's like all this different stuff and it makes you feel like on the packaging, you're like, okay, this is good for me. But then you're like, really? Like, what, what the hell's in this thing? Oh, yeah. Like those Quest bars? Yeah, those yeah. are horrible. Are they? I mean, <laughs> well, if you look at the ingredient list, because really it's whey powder plus flavoring. Right. You know. It's like 500 grams of protein. Right. I'm, uh, see, this is, protein bothers me. The whole, like, we got to get your protein, the protein, the protein. Don't eat the carbs, the protein. Like, I feel like that... Uh, has like become pervasive in our culture or maybe in just Los Angeles culture to a degree that's really unhealthy. Yeah. About two months ago, I started eating like a lot more carbs and I have to say I'm like a lot happier. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Carbs are the best. I mean, it depends what kind, but I mean, you don't want to overdo anything. Sure. But this, this, uh, dogma that you can't have like bread, it seems ridiculous to me. Yeah, well, I don't eat a lot of bread, but <laughs> but I know what you mean. And I think like, I don't know, I feel like in the last year or so, I've kind of come to this uh, belief system where I feel like... Here we go. <laughs> about diets. Yeah. That you kind of need to eat the way your ancestors ate, whatever that is. So like, since I'm, I'm fucked, Korean... Man. I'm I'm screwed. I'm a vegan. Why? I'm a vegan who descends from a Italian butcher. You're vegan? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. No wonder you don't like all the protein. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Are you one of those high carb, uh, low fat people? I don't even know what that means, but I, I I don't think so. I just I just eat things that come out of the ground. Like it's, it grows okay. on a tree. Sure. Comes out of the ground. Right. That tends to be what I eat. Okay. I just try to keep it simple. Like it's like. Yeah. Like what is the Michael Pollan mantra? Like eat food, eat food, mostly, mostly plants, plants not yeah. too much. Right. And I just eat all plants. Okay. But basically that. Yeah. Well, that seems to work for you. I, I, when I eat all vegan, I get like this ravenous hunger no matter how much I eat. Yeah. Like I'll be fine for like three days and then by the fourth day, it'll be like... Just ready to eat your arm. 
Yeah, even if I eat like 10 bananas or something, I'll still be hungry like an hour later. I so what, what sates you? What makes you, your hunger go away? Um, I, I need a combo. So I always need starch, which is like a very maligned food these days, as you're kind of talking about. Yeah. Um, and I need, I need some protein and I need some fat. And usually that fat can't be like bacon because that's hard to digest for me. Right. So like lots of avocados. I love avocados. They're expensive though. Are they? Yeah. Like two and like, they're like $3 a piece. (laughs) <laughs> I think they're cheaper at Trader Joe's. Where yeah. are you getting them? I'm, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but they're expensive. I feel like you get a like, we go through a lot. So it's like, sure. you get like 10 avocados, you're $30. What? That I seems think. like a lot. <laughs> Maybe they are expensive and I just haven't noticed. Yeah. But they're like the perfect little, they're the perfect little food because they're really filling. Mm-hmm. And they like, you know, you cut them in half. It's like they're, they have their own little bowl. Like you don't even. Yes. It's like you a little self-contained a spoon. and a little salt. It's good. <laughs> Do you put chili flakes on them? Uh, see, so uh, Himalayan pink salt has been the, the, you know, the latest thing, but I'll try okay. the chili flakes. Yeah, it's good. Or uh, sriracha, I think sometimes too. But uh, we have an avocado tree in our backyard. Oh, nice. We've never gotten any avocados from it. That seems to be like a problem across the city. So, yeah. So I, I had uh, our friend, uh, my, you know, my daughter's friend was over and then her sitter came to pick her up. Mm-hmm. It was like late in the afternoon. So her sitter comes over. She's a Latina woman. And uh, we've known her for a long time. She's very spiritual. And the joke is we call her like La la Bruja, which I think means the witch in Spanish because she's always like, you know, casting spells and telling you about your energy and all that kind of stuff. Casting spells? Well, you know, like she's a, she's like a witch, you know, like (laughs) I've had a witch on the show. I know, I remember. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, we were like just standing in the backyard and I was like, oh yeah, it's our avocado tree. And I was like, but it doesn't give us avocados for some reason. And she's like, well, you got to be nicer to it. I was like, I was like, that work? No, I was like, I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, do you talk to it? And I was like, she's like, the tree's angry. She's like, the tree's mad. Like she was so serious. Wow. So now I feel like guilty whenever I look at my avocado tree, like go out there and touch it and like talk to it. But still like we have not nothing? yet nothing. I think but it, wait, you've only been here like a year. Yeah. It could happen. There's time. Yeah. We still have time to develop a relationship. <laughs> yes. But it's just like, free avocado. I'm like, I, I'm so busy. Now I got to go talk to my avocado tree. Make sure I'm not neglecting it. <laughs> it can be it. like your afternoon meditation. <laughs> <laughs> Combine it. Um, so how did you get into meditation? Like if you're raised Christian, I'm imagining that wasn't part of your upbringing. Is this something you came to as an adult? No. Uh, yeah. Um, I can't remember. I mean, I've always like really been into self-help and self-help books. Me too. So... I'm sure it came from one of those, though I resisted it for a long time. I did yoga for longer. Me too. So that was probably like the intro. Well, see, here's my theory. Like, I think yoga is a good intro because uh, you're moving, Mm -hmm. so it's less boring. Like, I think there's some resistance to seated meditation, especially at the beginning, because you're like, oh God, what am I going to do? And you're fidgety and your brain is going a million miles an hour. Whereas with yoga... You're sort of wearing yourself out, you sure. know? which, and, and yoga, I think in its origins was designed to be a way to prepare for seated meditation. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Like, so the old yogis of, of yore were mm-hmm. doing the, 
the yogis of yore were doing uh you know their program of yoga their various uh, asanas or stretches or whatever as a way of like limbering up the body but also like kind of wearing themselves out or bringing themselves into a, a state of deeper focus and then you could sit mm-hmm. so it's a way of priming yourself but um I, I followed the same trajectory where i did a ton of yoga and then as you know i think sometime in my mid-30s i started to sit down and i really like that well i took like a meditation workshop like a three-week meditation workshop where you go once a week for like a couple hours and with whom uh, I forget her name. She was actually kind of a terrible <laughs> teacher. <laughs> She's a grifter. She's in jail now. Um, no, I mean, not terrible in that way. But like she happened to be like the workshop was offered through the yoga studio uh-huh. where I was going at the time. So I, you know, I saw it in like their newsletter and thought, okay, maybe this is a sign that yeah. I should get into meditation. So you talk about self-help, and this is mm-hmm. a, a genre of, liter- of literature that is often maligned. Um, it's an embarrassing section of the bookstore to be found in. Yes. Like whenever I'm in there, I'm just like, uh, you know, <laughs> you kind of grab the book and then go to a different section to like, you know, but um, there's nothing wrong with reading about how to manage your life and improve your life and feel better. Right. Like I think it's kind of unfairly maligned. And like, I think most of us who turn to books for... Uh, some degree of relief have have picked up at least a few self-help books. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I read them almost compulsively, which is probably not healthy. There's a book for that. (laughs) (laughs) But I do, I mean, I remember reading that like David Foster Wallace had like a gigantic collection of of self-help books and that they would be like underlined and that's me notes in the margins and stuff like that. So that made me feel better. Yeah. No, I spent my twenties, like a good chunk of my early twenties. I had read this biography of Ralph Waldo Emerson, who for the entirety of his life, uh, kept detailed notes of everything that he read and then indexed those notes by subject matter, which helped him write his essays. Mm Mm-hmm. So I got really earnest and went through this period where like I did that and I read books and I, I highlighted them and then I copied what I'd, what I'd highlighted mm-hmm. and then I created this giant index based on, you know, I have, I still have it. Oh, wow. I've That's yet to, a book. I know. Like a book of, I mean, yeah, you could tell, like that actually sounds like a marketable book. So people can like read your summaries and figure out which self-help books they want to read. Maybe I should do that. <laughs> I, like, I think I always had this idea that I was going to write some sort of like Emersonian book, but I don't think I did it for long enough. And I, I still have this index. I still have all the notebooks. Mm-hmm. At some point I should go back in and try to, but there's a part of me, I think that doesn't feel worthy. Like who, <laughs> who am I to write a book of wisdom? Oh God. How many self-help books were indexed? Um, I'd say probably a couple dozen. I mean, it takes a long time. Yeah. Because you got to really, I mean, it's a labor intensive. You got to have a lot of time. It's like, it almost probably takes you as long to, you know, do the note take, you know, the note writing and the indexing probably takes you as long to do that as it does to read the book. Mm. So it's like double time, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I had a couple of years, this is right when I was getting into graduate school, like that period of my life was probably the freest I, I will ever be time-wise. And I was living at home, you know, just out of college. I was just sort of floating. Right. And that's what I was doing. Why okay. was I not out partying? <laughs> I don't know. 
Sounds like a good time. <laughs> yes. So it was a real hoot. Um, but yeah, no, I, I read a lot of those books and I'm glad I did. And I, you know, every once in a while, I think I'll go through phases where I read more. Like we were talking before I came on, um, where if I have a, you know, prior to taking this new day job, I was reading a lot of books related to work and business and, you know, mm -hmm. biographies of people who had done extraordinary things in that realm. And I think when I come to a pivot point in my life or I come to a point in my life where I'm trying to figure something out. I'll turn to books. Sure. You know, so did you have something that, have you had periods of your life where you've been struggling with uh, circumstances or struggling with depression or struggling with, you know, concerns about the future and am I going to make it as a writer or whatever that, you know, these books have helped lead you out of the, out of the fog? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's hard to tell whether it's the books that help or just the time passing while I'm reading the books <laughs> sometimes. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, with writing, especially, I've, I've read a lot of books about like writing habits and things like that. I like Twyla Tharp's book a lot, The Creative Habit. I don't know it. She's a dancer, and uh, it was about how you just need to make it a habit. So apparently she has like a habit of every morning she gets out of her house and hails a cab to go to the gym. And that's like the habit that anchors her entire creative life and something you do without questioning, you yeah, know, like yeah. brushing your teeth. So that was helpful for me when I was trying to like create a writing habit that you just need to like, it needs to be like brushing your teeth. So how does it work for you? Well, because <laughs> you were saying earlier about <laughs> discipline and... Yeah, I it works for me and then I go through and then something will happen in life that throws my schedule out of whack and then it'll take me a while to like get back in. Yeah. Like this book coming out, I think I'm kind of using it as an excuse a little bit, but it did throw me off my usual writing schedule. I you know, I this is I always talk to writers who are in this phase of operation because yeah. their book is out and they're out doing their publicity. Right. Uh, you know, obviously there's a point where it gets to be too much, but I think you have to allow yourself like this is part of the work too. Like you've taken the time to write the thing and get it published. It's okay to spend some time in promotion mode. Yeah, maybe. I mean, what about just break mode? That too. <laughs> I mean, cause you got <laughs> Cause I'm not really, you know, well, I, w I wrote this novel that didn't, you know, it's now like sitting in a drawer. Um, but the writing of it was the most grueling creative experience of my life. Mm -hmm. And was there like any pleasure in it? I mean, yeah, at at times, but I'm not that guy who like derives a lot of pleasure from writing, at least the stuff that I've written so far. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, yeah, the, the act of creation, I shouldn't undersell it. Like the, the act of writing when it's going well, when you get mm -hmm. a sentence right, like it's very satisfying. And the deep work that the book required um, is not dissimilar from the work of meditation. It's very similar. Like it's a confronting of suffering and like a real slow motion and repetitive um, observation of it. So, okay. I feel like my experience of meditation is different. Cause like, I feel like lighter and happier and better. I don't feel like it's an exploration <laughs> well, of my pain and suffering. I feel like it relieves. Yeah. Whatever. No, it, I think it relieves it too, but I think the, the, the way out of it is into it. I don't think that it's like a running away or a forgetting about, or I think that it's like you see what comes up. And for me anyway, like what comes up 
um, isn't always pleasant, but like you notice those patterns, you let them go. You don't, you hopefully don't sit there and fidget with it and obsess about it. Um, but it's an observation of, uh, internal thoughts and patterns. And hopefully, yeah, hopefully you get to a place where like, you're not thinking that's the whole aim. You know, you get to a place where it's like more open and lighter, you know, mm-hmm. but maybe I'm not as good at it as you are. <laughs> no, not really. I, well, I, I don't think I'm good at it at all. My mind definitely wanders a lot, yeah. but I think I've come to sort of accept the wandering is just part of the right meditation. Right. Know? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if this is a, if this is good or bad, but I've like been using it to work on various things, you know? So like if I'm working on, like, do you just meditate, like just sit there or do you have like a something to guide you? I say like the same little like inhale, exhale, like silently okay. in my head, you know? So I yeah. have like a little mantra, I guess is what you would call it, but right. I just say it repetitively. Okay. Um, you know, b- very basic. It's yeah. not, I don't do anything super complicated. Okay. I used to do that. And I think, I don't know. I had some good experiences with it too, but now I use Headspace. Okay. Which is, do you know what it is? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So it's, like, an, it's an app. Yes. For those of app. you listening. <laughs> yeah. And like, it will have like unguided meditations on there that basically keep time, but yeah. they'll have like these packs So if you want to, so right now I'm on the focus pack and it'll be 30 days and each day you get these like prompts. So there's this like vague sense of progress that you are becoming a more focused person. Um, Does it work? I mean, you at least feel more focused. Is that, does that count as working? Yeah, yeah. Um, or, you know, I mean, if you're feeling a lot of anxiety, there's like the anxiety pack and it gives you specific meditation techniques to like become less anxious. Yeah. Um, and I found that to be helpful. I think I need, even though, you know, you're not supposed to like put this sort of weight on meditation, I think I need to feel like there's like I'm getting better at something. So you can at least say, like it keeps track for you. So you can say, I've done the anxiety meditation for like 28 days. I did it. Yeah. yeah. Tick the box. Right. I find that, uh, the, the, the truth is that I function best in meditation. The longer I can sit there, it takes me a long time to quiet down. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and what freaks me out a little bit is that I wake up this way. I've been asleep for however many hours I get up, I sit down and I'm, my mind is just jabbering and sure. it's like, it's six thirty in the morning. Like you think I'd, <laughs> you'd think I would have like some warm up time, but like I just roll out of bed and like that, whatever that is, you know, that constant churn of thoughts or whatever mm-hmm. that human beings are plagued with. Yeah. It's right there. And if I sit down for 20 minutes, you know, it varies from day to day. Some days are better than others. Um, I can quiet it down a little bit. I think it's like incremental progress. That's mm-hmm. the way I've always pictured it. Like right. I'm not imagining that this is going to be like, you know, making revolutionary changes in me in six months or even a year or two years or, you know, five. But I think like over time, my bet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's a, it's a, it's a life project where I feel like, you know how, when you're a kid and you're measuring yourself against the wall to see how tall you are. Uh-huh. 
And then like you forget about it and then you go back six, you know, six months later and it's like, oh my God, I grew. Sure. It's like that, you know, like you're not going to be able to notice it on the day to day in a really, um, stark way. But yeah. I think over time, if you stick with it, it's the kind of thing where the impact will be large. That's sure. my, that's my bet anyway. So you really roll out of bed and meditate? Yeah. Like you don't eat anything? No. Oh, wow. Yeah. I like empty stomach first thing. I love early and like if I could sit for three hours, mm -hmm. I would, I would love, there's nothing I would love more. I love to do it. Like I actually, <laughs> en I enjoy sitting there, Sure. but I just never have that. Much. I rarely have that much time. So do you read like those books, like the surrender experiment? And I've read a ton. Like I haven't read that one, but yeah. I read those. And then, um, right before my, my, I think when my wife was pregnant with my daughter, I was like, all right, I got to figure my shit out. And, uh, I started to read more and then I started to listen to these, uh, podcasts like Dharma talks or whatever the heck it is. Mm -hmm. A lot of Thich Nhat Hanh. And I got into this thing where I was like, if I listen to one of these a day, it's going to, it makes the day better. Like it's a way of like setting my, what's the word? You know, it's like a way of setting myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I still do that. Sure. And a lot of them I've listened to over and over and over again, but I just like his little like soft voice. <laughs> it's like, a, it's like my whoopee, you know, but I feel like, um, the weird thing about being a human being and a weird thing about all of this stuff that we're talking about, you know, meditation, self-help, trying to, um, live in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. trying to be your best self or like whatever you want to call it. It's amazing to me how easily I forget and like how easily I can backslide and how easily. Sure. And so it's like, I, I, I need a daily reminder. And like yeah. one of the things that I always say to myself or like one of the little like lines that sticks to me is, uh, forgetfulness is the opposite of mindfulness. So like mindfulness being just like awareness of what's going on within you and around you. Mm-hmm. And then the opposite of that is just like this backsliding, this forgetfulness, this like immersion in that chatter of your brain and, you know, losing track of that awareness. Yeah. Like how often you have to be reminded of the same thing. That right. Helped you a lot at one point, but right. you completely forgot and ignored it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I constantly, it's like I need a daily reminder. And so that's what I think those podcasts do, you know, and yeah. I, and I, and I think the reason I like those so much is that I'm able to do that while I'm like grocery shopping or driving sure. or, you know, sure. so I can fit it in. Well, I have like a, I don't have like an index of self-help books. <laughs> well, what are some of the big but, ones um, that, that you've liked? Like, what are the ones that the like big ones. you've gone back to and like reread or that like have lived on your nightstand for extended periods or whatever? Um, well, I mean, there are a few sort of related to addiction, Although I don't think addiction is a big issue, but I feel like, um, what do you mean? You don't think it's a big issue? Like I'm not addicted to anything really right now. Oh, you're not. Yeah. Well, give it time. <laughs> but, <laughs> it's, it's early. It's not but even I noon. feel like, but they are so, sort of like more, uh, meditation -y sort of books about addiction and you know, so much of it is about living like living how to live well sort of sure so i have a couple of those um 
And then like I have a, so although I don't have like an index, I have like a 30 day self-made journal type thing that I read. So that are supposed to remind me of key lessons that I learned. Did you write these down? Yeah, I wrote these down. Oh, okay. So like key messages that I took from, I mean, I didn't originally write them. I right. wrote, I copied down, you know. These are like the highlights. Yeah. What are some exactly. of the key messages? trying to remember what I read today because I feel like I should be able to remember. Um, I think, so the one today was accepting change. I think this one comes from like the power of now or something. Yeah. But about how obviously everything changes, but that whatever we desire or whatever, or even whatever we have, our relationship to that is inevitably going to change. So even if there's something you really, really wanted and felt you couldn't live without, once you get that, your relationship with that is obviously going to change. And at some point, it might disappear. You might not want it anymore. You might not want it as intensely, all of those things. Um there's more there, but anyway, I that was, was just, the lesson for I today. was on Twitter. It's reminding me I was on Twitter, uh, and I was, you know, like flipping through my timeline or whatever, and there was a quote from Krishnamurti that somebody tweeted, mm-hmm. and he was like, my secret is that I don't mind what happens. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. Like, you know how you'll read like some pithy thing on Twitter, right. and be like, that's exactly <laughs> right. Just whatever happens, let's just don't mind it. There'd be some, life yeah. would be so much easier if you just didn't mind what happens. Yeah. Well, it's hard though. So then I'll think about what I read and then journal. And today I remember writing about how, like, how do you know when to actually like take action and try to change things? And how do you know when you accept? And if it changes, it changes. If it doesn't, that's cool too. Do you have the answer? No. (laughs) (laughs) I thought we were going to break some news here on the other people podcast. (laughs) Uh, I mean, for the thing I was thinking about, I was like, no, I need to keep working on it. It's accept the, th- accept the things you cannot change. So if you can change it, right, then I guess try to. And why, why addiction? Why does addiction-related self-help literature resonate with you? Um, well, I think because I've, like, I have a tendency, like, I do have, like, all-or-nothing sort of tendencies. Okay. So even with writing, but with other things too, certain diets, um, drinking, uh, you know, I've gone through these periods where it feels like that's what organizes my life. Right. Do you know what I mean? Sure. So a lot of like my mindfulness practices seem to need to be about balance. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like yeah. not being so... You know, like, just because something appeals to me at a moment doesn't mean I have to go so far in that direction. Well, I have a couple of thoughts here. Like, first of all, like, one of the ironies that I've always, uh, or that I've often pointed out in conversations like this is that I think my uh, less than wise behavior in my youth Mm -hmm. actually led me on the path to being healthy. Um, Like when The veganism? Well, yeah, when you do uh, drugs and you're partying, when I was in college, I was sort of a heathen, you know, for a couple of years anyways. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And uh, 
you know, you wake up with a lot of hangovers sure, and you feel like shit. Right. And especially when you're doing harder drugs or, you know, you're having like, you know, you do ecstasy and you wake up and you just like feel like you want to die. Mm-hmm. Um, you go, wow, what, like, what did I put in my body that made me feel this way? Like, this can't be a good idea. <laughs> and then, um, you start to work off hangovers by exercising. Like then you start to get, then you do yoga and you're like, Oh, like this is like a bong hit without the paranoia. And like, mm-hmm. you know, you start to really understand how you feel. Sure. And so that got me into, uh, hiking constantly. That got me, I think that led to my, uh, food awakening when I was like 20 years old. Food awakening. All right. Well, yeah. Like with well, your food no, consciousness cool. where yeah. you go, well, what am I putting in my body? Like, yeah. let me read about this. And then you read a couple of books and then it's like, Oh, like, wait. So you went vegan when you were 20? Yeah. Wow. Okay. I read, uh, I read like diet for a new America was a big one by John Robbins. Who's like the heir to the Baskin Robbins fortune who like, you know, went full hippie and it's like, it's like home births and like, you know, herbs mm-hmm. and plants and stuff. And, um, I don't know. It was that. And then it was, uh, fast food nation. Sure. You know, like just books like that. Yeah. Um, but it was all like, I think a lot of it was an outgrowth of, of or at least partially an outgrowth of doing the exact opposite. And then the second thing that comes to mind with with respect to uh, addiction related literature and addiction culture mm-hmm. is that, uh, and this goes back to something I was talking about earlier with with regard to my envy of uh, the religious and people who can find real comfort in magical thinking uh, along similar lines, but not quite the same. I find myself very envious of people in twelve step programs. Oh I, yeah, like Kurt Vonnegut. Um, used to say, and I've quoted him saying this on this show before, uh, that he thought Alcoholics Anonymous was the best religion in the country. Yeah, it is very much a religion. And it is, but <laughs> it, but it, it, it performs all the functions so beautifully. It's so honest, Yeah, you know, and, and it's like not hierarchical. Like sure. there's not like a chief, you know, and it's like, right. pur- it's purposefully community driven. Everybody takes the stage. You get up there, you bare your soul you have a sponsor, so you have, like, like it creates this real social fabric. Mm-hmm. Um, it's ritualistic. You go as often as you need it. Some people go every day, but like the people who are in the program, they really go. You have this set of steps that helps you reconcile with people and alleviate and really work through your guilt in an honest way. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not saying it's for everyone, but I'm like, wow. Like, <laughs> I know people who are in the program, they have such rich social lives. Like, not sure. only do they have a support network of people who are suffering in a manner similar to theirs, mm-hmm. but they also, especially as they get further down the river on it, they become sponsors to people just starting out. Right. And so you get this really rich experience of helping people. Sure. And all of that is sort of built into it. And I think of that juxtaposed against like the more traditional Catholicism or whatever that I was raised in, mm-hmm. where it's very hierarchical and patriarchal and not a lot of emotional honesty, not a lot of like open questioning and like bearing of souls. I mean, I guess that can happen in a confessional or whatever, but it's not the same. Like there's just like, I've been to an AA meeting. Like I was Mm -hmm. researching a novel that I didn't wind up writing that I thought was going to involve this. And I was like, I got to go do this. Sure. I came out wrecked like in a good way, (laughs) in a good way. But I was just like, wow, that was powerful. Like, you, you know, you go sit there for an hour and listen to people and, uh, I was very moved, but I was also like, I remember like I needed like a glass of water. <laughs> yeah. Like, it was like, it's a <laughs> they lot. They usually have snacks. They do. No, yeah. I went to A meetings for like a year and, um, you know, 
a lot of the things that you're saying are very cool. I mean, it is a very specific belief system, though. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, I did, you know, I stopped going, not because there was anything wrong with it, but, um, you know, it's like, if you're in it, you have to sort of take on this belief that you're an alcoholic and anytime you stray from the path of AA, you may fall off the wagon and horrible things will happen that are far beyond your control. Right. Um, Or, you know, the same person who has the same habit of like not drinking or rarely drinking can just have the belief that they went through a period where they drank a lot, learned that it didn't make them happy and then stopped. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the behavior is the same, but you, the belief system becomes very different. Well, I don't the, know if I'm. No, there's more than one. Myself. There's more than one way to skin the cat. I mean, you know, I don't think that everybody who has a problem with alcohol or substance who stops using has to go through this specific program. Sure. But I do think there are some aspects of it. Like I think of like the step-by-step, I think of the amends part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that very moving. Like I've had a couple of friends who go through the program who have like made amends. Like I found those moments, like I was like, oh, you know, that's like really uh, heart-rending and uh, there's a lot of healing that happens. Sure. And I don't think that you can, I question whether or not, and it doesn't have to happen in the context of 12-step, but I, if somebody has had a really difficult time and has behaved in ways and done things for which they have a lot of guilt and that, that have damaged relationships. And I, to me, that's always the biggest indicator of an issue mm-hmm. is if the use of substance is affecting relationships with those closest to you. Um, you know, I've, I've looked at it in my own life where I'm like, like, am I doing okay here? You know, like, mm-hmm. And it's always like, as long as I'm not like damaging my relationship with my wife or my friends or my family, like that to me is a good indicator. Sure. But if substance ever became an issue where it was affecting those things, then I, I think that's where I would send up a red flag. But um, I guess my point is that there are certain components of uh, healing with respect to that stuff that I think are sort of, uh, you have to have them. It seems to me it would be hard to like fully heal from that sort of thing without going through some semblance of that process. Maybe if it, you know, I'm not saying it has to happen formally, but if you don't go through some sort of recognition, inventory, amends, Mm -hmm. that just seems like logical to me, (laughs) right? (laughs) Well, in a way I do. I mean, that's like the part that really reminds me of like religion and salvation and asking for forgiveness. I'm like uh, this close to being like, I'm going to get converted. (laughs) I'm a prime target. You're ready. You're ready to <laughs> come to Jesus. I, he's so, he's just like standing behind me, looking over my shoulder. It's like any minute now. Um, I mean, I enjoyed going to those meetings. There's a lot of laughter. You get like great stories. Yeah. And I also went to the, the like atheists version. It's called like a we agnostics group. So, oh. you know, you get like a lot of, it, like people would talk about how, this meeting would talk about religion more than any other group, despite the fact that it was 
supposed to be a welcoming space for agnostics and atheists. It's I like mean, it po- was. It's like my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, there were like a lot of recovering Irish Catholics, that uh-huh. sort of thing. Sure. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It's interesting. And uh, I guess we got onto this, this uh, topic of conversation via self-help literature and everything else. <laughs> um, before we leave it, I want to ask you, like, with respect to writing, mm-hmm. if, like, what are your favorite writing-related books you mentioned one earlier the creative habit the creative habit but are there like are you into Anne Lamott or like are there other books in that genre that you feel were super helpful um other books that I found helpful I wrote a blog post about this there was one um called there's there was one about like embracing rejection that was really helpful uh rejection proof Okay. So it's it's this guy's story who like decided his fear of rejection was really like limiting his life. So he started doing really crazy things and asking asking for things that he thought people would say no to. Like he went into a Dunkin' Donuts and like asked them to make donuts in the shape of like you know the Olympic sign. Yeah. And they did it. <laughs> well, he's really setting a high bar. Yeah, he is kind of. <laughs> Shooting for the moon. But it was, uh, you know, just because there's a lot of rejection you face as a writer. Yeah. So it kind of like this idea that you should be seeking rejection was kind of empowering and helpful. Yeah. Um, I like The Lifelong Activist. Have you read that one? Uh-uh. That one's written by a vegan. So this might have several appeals for you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know it doesn't sound like a writing related book but it's actually like uh i mean the premise is like a lot of activists burn out because they think that this they have a picture of what an activist should be like how much of an activist they should be uh and because of that they either burn out or they don't even do it to start with because the bar is set so high so it's sort of about fitting activism into your life but you can just replace the word activism with writing and it's about fitting writing into your life. Does the author recommend this or did you just apply this as you were reading? I it? applied it as I was reading. Interesting. Um, but I mean, it was first recommended it to recommended to me as a time management book. And the person recommending it was like, don't worry about the title. Yeah. And it's been helpful. Well, it's funny that you, I, I keep hearing you say that you're finding lessons that you've applied to your writing life in books that are self-helpy but might not be explicitly about writing right or might be involving an entirely different uh discipline or art form right and that's but that's a good point to make and and sometimes it's even sometimes these lessons are even more resonant or there's some comfort to be drawn from realizing that uh other art forms uh you know artists face similar problems or you know, I've gotten lessons about writing from reading about architecture. You can get mm-hmm. it from reading about musicians. Like there's something to be said from going to those places and kind of cross pollinating. And I don't know, spending all of your time living exclusively in the writer channel mm-hmm. can maybe be limiting. Yeah. And I think I want writing to just feel like life. Do you know what I mean? Like versus something that I'm taking time from life to make, you know, like making it seem like an integral part of living versus like something I need to carve out space for within living. 
So it helps. I like the books that make me think of it sort of in broader terms uh, that don't separate the two so much. Is it a pleasure for you to write? Do you like it? It is sometimes. Yeah. Uh, lately, no. Like, I have a lot of notes about, like, I mean, it might just be what I'm working on, the novel that I'm trying to write. I keep having these thoughts, like, what is the purpose of this novel? I have that thought a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Which I never, I mean, with the one that came out, I haven't had, I didn't have those thoughts with Cake Time. It was just like, I want to write this. But now I'm it, like, had it been brewing in you for a long time. Um, well, maybe in the sense that like grad school wasn't a productive time. <laughs> so if you if you think of that as brewing, then yes, That's it was brewing. Whenever, for a while. yeah, any like you can justify any lethargy or uh, yeah. distraction as uh, you know, it's right. incubation, right? Or research. It's research. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then, how long did it take you once you got down to the business of writing cake time to get it done? Once I got down to it, I was probably under two years, maybe less. Okay. Um, but like there are random stories in there I'd written a long time ago. The bulk of it, though, in a relatively short time. And now it's on to the next. Yeah. While you're doing promotion and stuff. Yeah. And I'm trying to write like those are really short stories because it's a novel in, sh in stories. So yeah. it's they were separate stories. And now I'm trying to write like a novel novel, which I'm having a hard time with. Yeah. You know, with short stories, I felt like I could hold all the components in my head. So I wouldn't need to like outline. And with the novel, it's like, okay, it definitely doesn't work if I don't have an outline. But sticking to an outline seems so formulaic and strange. I don't know. I mean, you know, do you have I, any advice? Well, I mean, I've talked to enough people. I, I mean, think some people create an outline and then complete, you know, give themselves complete permission to deviate from it. I mm -hmm. think other people will write an entire draft. They'll just barf it out, you know, warts and all, and then yeah. find the structure like, and then outline it afterwards. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Which is like yeah. to go in and kind of like retroactively find the structure, um, there's different ways. And then there are other people who just sort of like intuit their way through it. Mm -hmm. Um, I did not mean to rhyme right there, by the way. <laughs> it's not like... What's your method? Um, I think it's the intuit, you know, intuit, and it's probably the slowest, maybe it's a slower way of going about it, but, uh, you know, finding the structure as you go, like having, I think for me, with both of my novels that I wrote, you know, fully, mm -hmm. I had a very clear picture of where it was going to end. Okay. And so that was good because then I knew what I was headed towards. I think sure. it was, it was impossible for me to make good progress on the books until I got to that point. Mm -hmm. So I needed to know where I was headed. I needed to have a sense of destination. Yeah. Um, and, and it wasn't like super specific, but I just, I was like, okay, like I felt like confident. Right. And once I had that, then I could sort of like plod my way through. Well, you said like the second, this book that you pulled, yeah. that it was very autobiographical. Was the first one like that yeah. too? Yeah. Does that kind of help with the structure, do you think? Somewhat, somewhat. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they are fiction, you sure. know? So it's like you're render, you're trying to render events of real life and like your internal experiences and external experiences into a, um, form that's palatable to a reader. Mm -hmm. So that requires some fudging and some rearranging and, you know, everything else. You still have to build, right. there's still the architecture has to be there. You sure. Know? It can't be 
but as open-ended as life. Yeah. And so, but lately it's been making me wonder like, maybe I should write nonfiction. Like if I'm, if I'm leaning this hard towards it in fiction, mm-hmm. like maybe I should try to be explicit about it in the sure. next project. <laughs> like Rob Robert's did. Maybe. Yeah. What did or, he do? Well, he said, I mean, his last book is Liar, the memoir. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, he's talked about how he noticed his books, which were novels until that point, were getting more and more autobiographical. So right. finally he decided, all right, I'll write a memoir. Yeah. And now he's, I think, writing something that's completely not autobiographical at all. But it is nonfiction? No, now he's back to fiction. Now we know it's like, yeah. yeah. And like Sheila Hetty, you know, who you have up there. Yeah. Um, that is a novel from life. Like, you know what I mean? Like it says on there, a novel <laughs> from life. I love that book. Yeah. Like, it's like, how, it's how should a person be? Yeah. Yeah. And I think in interviews, she said, like, I don't really see the point of writing fiction anymore. I mean, these are the thoughts I'm having like every day as I try to work on my novel. Yeah. So I don't know how healthy that is. Or well, helpful. I had this idea. I should have done it. Like, this is the thing. I always have these great ideas that I don't follow through on, or at least what I think are great ideas, is that uh, I was like, I should just keep a regular diary of the Trump presidency, which is a total, oh which is a total fixation <laughs> of mine. Not like a diary of like what he's doing, but a diary uh-huh. of like what I'm doing. Sure. And like my online experience, but like be meticulous about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I started on inauguration day, my buddy Adam and I went to, uh, we went and did a float like a, you know, one of those flotation tanks or sensory deprivation. Oh, yeah, I've wanted to do that. Yeah. So we did that over in uh, Westwood and it was, uh, it was terrible weather in LA that day. It was like pissing rain. Mm-hmm. Is it cold? No, the tank? Yeah. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just remember dry. I just remember the day cause it was, okay. it was so perfectly fitting that the weather was that dreary. And uh, I brought my portable microphone and we recorded mm-hmm. and we were talking back and forth about like what's going to happen. I have that tape still. I haven't listened to it, but like that was the beginning of what I thought would be my Trump memoir. And I was going to just document day by day, but then, you know, I just didn't do it. And then, well, I mean, your tweets are automatically saved. Yes. Does that, does maybe, that help? Maybe my tweets will be the basis for a book or this podcast where I've yeah. talked about it ad nauseum. Well, like Tao Lin's book, you know, selected tweets, yeah. Tao Lin and Miranda Gonzalez. Or Mira, yeah. T- Mira? Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, you could do that. I've Just thought... Just do selected tweets. I Why guess. make it hard for yourself? Right. <laughs> I love reading Twitter. I've noticed that. Yeah. I like it. Like, I think as a literary form, like, especially people who are good at it. Like, I like joke writing and I like funny people and... Yeah. Um, you know, it can be, it can be its own little art form, but... Yeah. Maybe I, I'm not following the right people. Uh, you know, it's hit and miss. Yeah. And it's like, it's like jokes. Like, you know, like I feel like even the really funny people, like it's like one out of five are good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, <laughs> I've tried that before. I've tried putting together like a book of like pithy things that I've written or said. Sure. And assembling it. And I sent it to my agent. She was like, eh. like, it's just, there's not enough there. You know, I guess if you do it with like a really, you know, indie press or something, but right. I think that's a reason why, well, Tao and Mira are so like prolific on Twitter. And so good at it. That's true. Yeah. I'm not that, I'm not that into it or something. And, um, I think doing it together was a smart move Mm -hmm. because then you have like, there's more there, there, you know, I don't know. You'd have to be really fucking good at Twitter is my point in order to justify a book. Maybe you need to 
I mean, you're really good at podcasting, so maybe there's a way to mix. I don't know. I'd have strength. To, here's the problem. I'd have to transcribe all this. No, you can get a VA. A virtual assistant? Yes. Why would you do it? I don't know. How much does that cost? It can't be expensive. I mean, they're all in like... <laughs> like, like halfway around the world? Yeah. <laughs> get some kid in Bangalore to transcribe my podcast? It would be a lot of money for them. I know. I just uh, wonder like this many shows, like if I really... Because like if I did transcribe all of these shows mm -hmm. and then take the time to go through and pull the best bits, sure, there's a book there. Yeah, definitely. Like uh, Tools of Titans, you know that Tim yeah. Ferriss book? I've read it. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, now we're really coming it, out of the closet. It's like a really, yeah. really big book. I but have... you could do that easily. What would mine be called? Not Tools of Titans. <laughs> tools of, it would have to be Tools of Something. Yeah. And it has to begin with a T. Yeah, and it can't be like ironic, like, you know, like a tool. No, tools of tools or it would have to be, uh, I'm trying to, I can't think of the T word that I want. <laughs> but I'm sure he didn't personally transcribe all of that. I'm no. sure he used the VA. He freaks me out a little bit. I got to be honest. Like just that, and I've, I've, I've talked about this before because re I've read a lot of his stuff. I've listened to podcasts by him like... I don't think he's, I think he's benign. He's just mm -hmm. like a, he's just like basically like a nerd with like a super high achievement drive. Sure. You know, like super high. Yeah. But there's something about like tech bro culture in particular, like Silicon Valley, like mm -hmm. I'm going to maximize myself and I'm going to be like peak human. And like, right. I start to get anxious after a while. I'm like, Jesus, like, <laughs> is it ever enough? You know, right. I'm going to be ripped. I'm going to have 2% body fat. I'm going to travel the world, learn how to tango. Like, it's like, okay, chill. Like, I feel like you're, I guess like the sense that I have at a certain point is that there's like a bottomless hole and I'm watching somebody just shovel dirt into it sure you know well and then there's like the whole question of enjoyment like i understand learning tango and becoming like a professional you know prize-winning tango dancer in three months can be cool <laughs> but like right. then do you actually enjoy tangoing yeah. do you know what i mean do you still tango or like you just tick the box i did right, that i exactly. got the, i got the chapter in my book and like and then like in order, like the business that you're in and, and part of me envies this because like you're in a constant state of learning. Your job is basically to learn publicly and then to educate your listeners. Mm -hmm. so it's a really cool service in a lot of ways. Sure. Um, but it's again, it's like you've got to keep the churn going. It's like nonstop. Um, yeah. You, you got to, I guess, and I'm sure he knows this. People like him, he, you know, he, he knows it. You got to take some time <laughs> to like, he needs some time for Tim. I just want him to relax is what well, I want. Well, he does talk about like taking these digital breaks and yeah. like there's a lot about like meditation and stuff in there too. It's getting there, yeah. That appeals to me. But I skip all the stuff he does about like bodybuilding and stuff. I'm like, I don't care about, you know, anyway. Yeah. It's interesting. There's a whole interesting subculture out there. And uh, what I find is that a lot of people in entertainment that are into it, a lot of people who are writers, you know, people pay attention to human performance mm -hmm. science, um, whether it's meditation or diet or exercise or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, if you want to be effective at what you do and like reasonably sane, mm -hmm. um, I guess these are the things that people are doing. But like, don't you feel like writing is an inherently inefficient process? 
or am I just doing it wrong? I mean, no, it's, it's, it's always been, it's always been that way for me. <laughs> so it's like hard to read about maximizing your time on all these things where, you know, even if I really maximize my time or like what you did, you know, you wrote this novel mm. with like two kids, one with special needs going on and then you put it aside and who knows what will happen to it. I so, still haven't read it. <laughs> no, not since January. Yeah. I haven't had a, like, I haven't had a desire and I haven't written a word. Oh really? I haven't done anything. Like I, I mean, I got this day job, so I'm like adjusting sure. to that, but like it took so much out of me and I don't want to sound precious or uh, melodramatic about it, but like creatively, sure. uh, I was just like, you know, it just felt like, uh, pulling teeth, you know, and I, right. I got it done, got it out of me. And then like, eh, this, that, like it was greeted very, with very tepid responses. And I was like, holy shit. Uh, I think I need to press pause or I'll revisit this later. But like, that's just, that's as far as I've gotten with it. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I think it's cool that you have these like big goals for your writing. You know, I think I could have, I might benefit from more of that. Um, I think I might benefit because I didn't, yeah, I might benefit from being like less fixed on certain outcomes or something. Well, but it's not like you've said I'm pulling it forever and destroying it. It's you just press pause, right? Yeah. So I was... you might still do something. But yeah, I mean, say like in the writing of that, you were super efficient with your time for like a year or whatever. But then if at the end you decide, ah, you know, it's not doing what I want it to do. Let me pull it. Like, th was that being efficient with your time? Do you know what I mean? So Kinda. like, I feel like efficiency as a writer it's difficult to measure and to achieve. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that too much time is the enemy. I think that whenever I've been most efficient as a writer and as a person, it's been in times where I have the most going on. Really? I Should think I get a job? Yes. <laughs> that'll help. <laughs> no, but I think of a, a conversation I had with Amy Bender. I think it was episode 300 of this show, if I'm recalling correctly, but was talking to her and she, at the time, I think, you know, she has twins if I'm remembering and, and, uh, they were like one year, you know, they were like one, she was mm -hmm. in the thick of it with yeah. young kids. And, you know, she was talking about writing in like, you know, five to 10 minute bursts hmm. as the only, the only thing that she could really do, you know, right. like that was the only way that her life could accommodate creative writing was in these short time windows because she had demands on her time coming from other places. And then I also think, uh, perhaps oddly, and this goes back to what we were talking about with respect to self-help books and books in uh, other artistic genres or whatever that can give us lessons in writing, uh, is that I remember reading an interview with Jack White of the White Stripes mm -hmm. and how when he had formed the White Stripes, you know, he, they created this very s specific set of aesthetic rules for the band, mm -hmm. like down to like color palette, red, white, black can only be guitar there can only be drums you know so it's like limiting sure and that the creativity of the band and like creativity generally can often spring from limitation mm -hmm. and so maybe if you're restricted in terms of your time or you give yourself maybe if i gave myself some sort of set of rules like the book has got to be x y and z mm -hmm. maybe there would be something to that you see what Maybe, I'm getting at? Yeah, it reminds me a lot of like poetry and a lot of like the constraint-based writing that comes out of that. 
But I, I mean, I actually went to grad school for poetry, but, um, who were some of your favorite poets? Wow. I've forgotten them all. So, so grad, <laughs> I blocked so, it out. <laughs> yeah. so, so graduate school was traumatic. Frank O'Hara. <laughs> okay. Oh no. Uh, you know, it wasn't traumatic like grad school itself, but there was just stuff outside of it that kept me from focusing. Yeah. Very well. Um, when you were in graduate school, mm-hmm. like what, what was keeping you from focusing? Um, well, I wasn't meditating <laughs> Okay. <laughs> for one. Yeah. So my thoughts were very scattered. Uh, I was just aimless. I didn't know what I wanted to do. By the way, every time you've said this and you've said mm-hmm. it like two or three times, yeah. a pang of envy. Really? Aimlessness sounds wonderful. I just, uh, ordered... What's it called? That Tom Lutz book about loafers. Okay. Anyway, I haven't read it yet, but I might get more aimless. Yeah. (laughs) Aimlessness sounds awesome. Is what I'm saying. No, I mean, aimlessness isn't great unless you actually, unless your goal is to be aimless because you're, you have all this turmoil about your aimlessness. But there's like, that's one of the three doors of liberation in Buddhism. It's aimlessness, signlessness, and... Wait, what was the second one? Signlessness. Signless? sign like like signlessness it means that nothing ha i think it's related to nothing having its own separate self or identity so oh, that like okay. when you see a tree it's just a tree and not a symbol for like the, the the word tree is ascribed to the shape or the form that you're seeing but it's actually this amalgamation of all these different elements and sunlight and soil and water oh, and okay. so like you don't get caught by the sign of the tree so that when they chop the tree down you don't sit there and weep or whatever you see what I'm saying? Yes. It's like not getting caught in the sign of the thing, I think, is one of the doors. And then aimlessness is like, that. that's sort of a, a virtue. It's like not having all of this ambition and these goals and these, I mean, it's, it's okay <laughs> to have, it's okay to, I think, have some goals and some things that you're working towards, but yeah, um, to be less fixed on your path or something is a virtue, which is a great way to justify being aimless. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I I would like to feel aimless and free. I mean, maybe that's a good goal. Maybe that's a more achievable thing than being having aim. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean like that's a th- I mean I got to make sure I understand it right um cuz it's not just about having no responsibilities or sense of responsibility and having no purpose in life. Mm-hmm. Um but it's maybe just not getting like uh defining yourself based on some outcome yeah getting fixed like it's got to be this and i've got to achieve this or else i'm not going to be right yeah i mean i think i think part of the turmoil in grad school is like i did want to achieve things but it was like i didn't know what Mm -hmm. you know yeah and there were you know just relationships things like that outside of school that that take up up most of my yeah time and just mind space i can do that yeah you write about it <laughs> uh no so not cake really time? i mean in no not really in cake time i journal about it a lot okay I, that's like i've done that for a lot longer than meditation and i feel like that really helps i mean i've actually started like throwing away my journals too because i realized i never really reread them yeah but it's like it's so. like you talked earlier about meditation being a light experience for you, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think, the way it should be. It should be pleasurable. Yes. If it's miserable, I don't think you're doing it correctly. Do you feel miserable? No. 
Okay. Good. Sometimes I'm entertaining misery or fear or like sure. suffering. Like it's there. I feel it. Like yeah. like physically feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's part of how you transcend it is to like be with it as opposed to run away from it or, you know, medicate it or whatever. Um, but when you talk about journaling as a, a daily practice, mm-hmm. like that's a great way to clear, to clean your slate yeah, and to lighten your meditation. Cause like you just get it all out, like all those thoughts and like, it can be really healthy. Yeah, it helps. I do it before meditation, but See? like the worst, I mean, part of why I start throwing them away is like, when you look back on it, it's so repetitive. You look back like five years and it's the same shit. So here's the deal. <laughs> you journal and then you meditate. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting down to meditate and like for the first 20 minutes, mm-hmm. I'm journaling just without writing it down. Oh, okay. You see, yeah. what I'm it's like that, right. just like that, blah, 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 right. every, and it's the same worries. It's yeah. the same, you know, more or less. Um, and then eventually you just sort of punch yourself out. You know what I'm saying? It's like, mm-hmm. it's like rope-a-dope. You just get tired and eventually your mind starts to slow down. Uh, maybe I should journal. I'll have to find some time to do that. Wait, how long are you meditating in the morning? 20 minutes. But usually, okay. but I set my timer for 20 minutes. Uh-huh. But if I get up early enough, it'll usually be like closer to 45 Whoa. I just go over and I don't want to get up. I could sit there for, I could sit there literally for six hours and be happy. Yeah. I'm like that with journaling because technically, I mean, if I follow my schedule, I have like an hour scheduled for journaling and meditating, but I often go way over. Mm -hmm. So then I'm behind the rest of the day. That's like a different problem, but. (laughs) Yeah. Well, no, I tell people who are like, when people, not that people ask me this a lot, but every once in a while, someone will be like, how do I get into meditation? And I'm like, just set yourself up for five minutes a day. Mm-hmm. because I sort of know that if you start doing it and you start actually enjoying it, it always runs longer. Sure. Like it sort of builds on itself. Um, you don't have to sit there for an hour on day one. Yeah. But I find that I usually just uh, like, uh, as a natural course of things go over. Right. Um, and I'm also trying to get to a place where I'm actually quieted down. I hate like quitting when I'm still like jabbering at myself. Yeah. You know, I like to get to a place where like the, the, uh, the, the waves have settled. The water has become more still. Do you meditate in here? No. Like, where do you meditate? In my closet <laughs> <laughs> with headphones, listening to oh, ocean. Wow. Cause I have two kids. Like right. I have, I put headphones on. I listen to ocean waves to like drown out car sounds or my kids. It's yeah. just like white noise. Um, and I sit there in the morning in my closet, shut the mm-hmm. door. Um, I mean, I could do it in here, but I just, that's the first place I go. I like brush my teeth, go in there, right? sit down. Yeah. It and, sounds uh, like a good routine. You know, there's worse, <laughs> there are worse routines <laughs> and I've lived them, you know. One of the things I didn't like about my meditation teacher yeah. that I had was, uh, she was very insistent about meditating right away, which to this day I have resisted, like. I remember, I mean, this was only after I had started meditating for like a week and I had said, well, she had asked how it was going. Yeah. And I was like, well, I don't really feel like anything's changed yet, but maybe it just takes time. Like those were almost my exact words. And she goes, well, are you doing it um, before coffee in the morning? And I said, no. And she's like, well... (laughs) See, you should do it. You should try doing it before the coffee. And then she's like, are you doing it for 20 minutes? 
Because before she had said, just start with whatever feels comfortable. Uh-huh. So I was like, no, I've been doing 10. And she's like, well, <laughs> you should try and do it for 20 because that's when you really see the benefits. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, um, I think people, I think 20 t- tends to be the magic number in a lot of different meditation practices or traditions because, uh, A, it's a number that uh, requires some endurance, but it, you know, seems like practical and manageable within the context of an ordinary busy life. And then B, I just think most people can't even come close to getting to a place where their mind is quiet unless you've sat there for a while. Is that what's been holding me back this whole time? What? The entire cause of my aimlessness <laughs> is I've been meditating for 15 minutes instead of 20. You fucked it up. <laughs> you fucked it up. Um, well, listen, it's, uh, it's great talking to you. I could sit here and talk to you about this stuff all day. Um, and I'm, uh, super happy for you. Congratulations on cake time. The the reviews have been stellar. Thank you. Starred reviews. (laughs) An astonishing debut. I was reading these things. Thank you. How does that feel? It feels really great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad it's out there. You are. Yes. Are you enjoying this part of it? Talking about it and talking to people and making the rounds? Yeah. Yeah, overall, it's been really fun. Okay. I've traveled more, too. Where'd you go? I've enjoyed. Just within the U.S., okay. up the coast, a couple places on the East Coast. But cool. I've liked it. Cool. Well, uh, it's great to meet you. You, too. And uh, I wish you well. Thanks. All right, guys, there you go. That is C.L. Jew. Her new novel in stories is called Cake Time. It's available from Red Hen Press. You can find C.L. online at cljew.com. Her Twitter handle is at CLJew. I believe she's on Facebook. Track her down. Cake Time is the book. Go get your copy today. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. This podcast has its own official app. It's free. The Other People app. Get it wherever you get your apps. Download it to your device. It's the best and most elegant way to listen. It's free. Why not do that? If you want to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod, patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you would like to email me, if you have thoughts, questions, you want to tell me a story, the address is letters at other PPL.com letters at other PPL.com. So I'm trying to think if I had any other celebrity interactions. I don't think I did. My daughter got to meet a Disney star. It's a big highlight for her. She got a picture. This poor Disney star. How many kids come up to you when you're a Disney star? <laughs> you're like in your 20s. But yet you're paying, you know, you're playing like 14-year-olds on screen. Got like a nation of eight year olds who worship you. I guess there are worse fates. I wish I, I mean, there's a part of me that wanted to say something to Jon Stewart. Hey man, I feel like we would get along. That's the thing. But I guess a lot of people feel like that. And I could be wrong. He may be a dick. Who knows? Maybe he doesn't want any part of anybody. He's got his family. I'm also fascinated by this concept of, like, turning it on and off. Like, these people, if they have to be charming, they can turn it on. 
Michelle Obama walks in the room, suddenly it's like, hey, it's easy to be on if you want to be on. I wonder if there's anybody for whom fame truly is not a burden. Maybe Charles Barkley. Love signing autographs. Love taking pictures. Love interacting with people. I guess if you're in it, if you're famous and there's no way out of being famous, you might as well embrace it. I don't know how you manage that. It's not easy. Or it wouldn't be easy for me. So now I'm reading a uh, galley of a Muhammad Ali biography. I love Ali. And I'm reading it with interest, and I'm, I'm excited to have the book, but I'm also dreading it a little bit because I have this very uh, sort of... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Polished, idealized version of him in my head. He's kind of a superhero to me, you know what I'm saying? And when you read a biography, it, uh, it almost always, you know, demystifies which is not a bad thing, but still. Sort of mourning the loss of my superhero, Ali. Preemptively. And yet, you know, still a hero. There really has never been an athlete like Muhammad Ali. That level of uh, physical talent intellectual talent, verbal facility, wit, sense of justice, physical beauty. Like that combination, like where, where have we seen that replicated? Nowhere. It's a rare, that was like a Halley's Comet. I think I'm going to go watch Meatballs. <laughs> 